When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is intellectual property? When does the law come into play? And what are some of the biggest recent cases we've seen because of it? We'll get to all of these questions and more on this edition of Getting Schooled. I'm Abby Hornacek. So... I'm going to just say right off the bat that I am a huge fan of Taylor Swift. My mom and I have the tradition of going to her concert every time she releases a new album. If you've been paying attention at all to the news as of late, you've probably heard about Taylor Swift re-recording her albums. She is one of the best-selling musicians of all time, and she's been re-recording all of her old music and releasing it as, quote, Taylor's version. So awesome. Her situation has a lot of people wondering how she doesn't own her own songs. Another situation that's been going on in the headlines lately is model and actress Emily Ratajkowski not owning certain photos of herself, some even taken by paparazzi. This all comes down to intellectual property. How can people ensure that they have ownership over things they create or feature themselves? Well, it's a good thing we have on deck partner and chair of the litigation department at Romano Law, Nicole Hoff. And Nicole joins me now. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the Getting Schooled podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So, so many people talk about intellectual property, but I think a lot of people probably don't exactly know what it is. So let's just start broad terms. What is intellectual property? So intellectual property is intangible property derived from human intellect. So it's different than physical property that that you can hold a real property, which is, you know, your land or a house on your land. Okay. And then has, um, just looking, historically speaking, has the definition of intellectual property changed at all throughout the years? Has it gotten more strict? Are more people covered? How has that worked? Well, I, I don't know if it's, if it's changed so much. I mean, intellectual property uh, goes back to Roman times when, um, when uh, trademark law was actually uh, in use, or maybe not trademark law, but trademark usage was evident when um, blacksmiths would actually mark their swords to identify uh, them as the blacksmith who created them. Oh, so is that where copyrights come from? Or is that intellectual property? Because if it's well, swords, so you think where, like it's a physical thing. Well, so that's where trademark law comes into play. So there's really four types of intellectual property uh, that we recognize today. There's uh, copyright, trademark, trade secret, and uh, patent law. Okay, so can you just take me through each one of those? So it would make sense that this is a, a trademark then because, you know, that's typically like a word, a name, a symbol, those types of things. Um, so take me through, let's start with copyright. Excellent. So copyright protects original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium of expression. So that's a little bit of a mouthful, so I'll break <laughs> that down. 
So originality has two parts, right? So uh, a work is original if it's not copied or, or based on the work of others, right? So it's independent. And then originality also means what we uh, think of someone when we say, hey, that's really original. It's, it's creative, right? So under the Copyright Act, there's a really minimal amount of creativity that's required. And fixed just means, you know, it could be perceived, reproduced, communicated. It's a very, um, very few things aren't fixed. Uh, example of something that might not be fixed is say um, I was uh, in the audience uh, watching stand up and I was emboldened and I, I get up to the mic and I do a performance and it's completely made up and no one recorded it and it isn't. Uh, written down anywhere, that would be unfixed because I, I literally can't give anything to the copyright office to tell them what it is they need to protect. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, so then with that, like when we, when we hear about, I, well, I want to ask about this whole Taylor Swift situation, but let's let's finish going through these. Um, what is a patent? So patents protect inventions and discoveries, which are uh, new, useful, or unlike anything else in existence, right? So you, there are three types of patents. There's a utility patent, uh, which basically uh, protects new and useful processes, machines, um, article of manufacture or composition of matter. Design patents, which you think of uh, fashion, right? So uh, a new original ornamental design. And then there are plant patents, which are granted to anyone who invents or discovers and asexually reproduces any distinct or new variety of plant. So it has to be useful. It has to have a purpose, essentially. It has to be novel, something um, that you just, that wouldn't be obvious. And um, it's not described anywhere else in a writing or, uh, and non-obvious, it, it can't just be a miniature version of something else that, you know, already exists. And patent protection is, typically 20 years from the date that the application is filed, where copyright, uh, it's usually, if it's one author's, uh, the life of the author plus 70 years. Okay, you're saying that's how long you're protected? Yeah. Okay, got it. So uh, how hard is it to get a patent? Because, you know, I, I feel like so many people in this world, they they try to invent something or they start something and they think it's a unique idea and then they maybe go and try to get a patent and they're like, oh, wow, this already exists. Well, I mean, that, that's where an attorney would come into play. So uh, I think that how difficult it is depends on whether or not you have a, of a novel um, idea, if it's new and if it's useful. And an attorney can, can tell you that pretty quickly. Um, so it's, it's really doing the due diligence, making sure it, it's unlike anything else that's out there. But, you know, if you think you have a, a, a great new process or, or something that is uh, deserving of protection, you should definitely uh, go for it. Is that a long process to try to get one of those? Honestly, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So what about the swords? We've, we've got a few swords. We want to brand the sword. Uh, take me through what a trademark is. So a trademark helps consumers identify the source and origin of a goods as distinguished from the source and origin of other goods. So um, the easiest and best example I can give this is, is Nike because trademarks come in a lot of different forms. It could be words, phrases, logos, even sounds, colors, uh, and shapes of packaging. So let's go back to Nike. Nike has a word mark, right? The Nike is protectable. Um, it also uses a little swoosh, right, as a logo. That's protectable Nike trademark. Just do it. Mm. That's the slogan. 
unmistakably Nike. You hear that, you know. Um, but sounds can also be um, subject. If you think about the NBC chimes, doo, 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 that's <laughs> protectable. Uh, you know, shapes and packaging can be uh, protectable uh, as well as trade dress. Color can even be protectable, but that's a hard one. Uh, you know, Tiffany blue. It's, you know, it's a, when you think of Tiffany, you think of that, that light blue or that Home Depot orange or the Coca-Cola red. Um uh, those also can be uh, protectable as a trademark. It just has to help customers identify the origin and source of goods. Got it. Or- yeah. I kind of I kind of remember, I think it was 2009, Nike sued Already LLC because they started selling shoes that shared uh, a style that kind of looked like the Air Force Ones. And so Nike was like, uh-uh, we're not having that. Yeah, so the, basically uh, trademark infringement, there are just a bunch of different factors, but it really comes down to, is there consumer confusion? So that is the end-all be-all of, of trademark infringement cases. So if, the, if consumers are confused and the public is confused, it's very likely that the court's going to find uh, trademark infringement. Interesting. Okay. So that's, that leads me perfectly then into Taylor Swift. I mean, something that immediately comes to mind when I hear intellectual property is her whole case. I mean, as we know, her label withheld the rights to her masters. So she was like, fine, I'm just going to re-record my first six albums to create new masters. But so her new masters then, would that create consumer confusion thinking like, okay, these, she, she designed it to be pretty much the exact same. So it's interesting that you, you um, are talking about this because often I get questions from from clients or potential clients that sort of cross trademark and copyright law. So Taylor Swift's um, whole, for lack of a better word, situation is actually a copyright law issue rather than a trademark law issue. So, and I can I can break that down a little bit for you to, to explain what's going on. Okay, so in every um, song right? There's two copyrights in play. There's a sound recording, uh, which is literally the sound recording or what's known in the um, industry as a master. And then there's a musical uh, composition, which is the the notes, the lyrics, right? So Taylor Swift's whole controversy uh, involves the sound recording uh, rights or, or the masters, right? So usually when an artist, a new artist in particular, um, signs onto a label, they basically um, give away their rights to this to the masters, the sound recording, and they get an advance against royalties. And then basically they get um, t- over time, uh, you know, opportunity to recoup those advances against the royalties, but it usually doesn't work out that well for the artist um, because of Hollywood accounting, to, to be frank. Mm-hmm. So she didn't hold the, the rights in her um, in her sound recordings, except it's my understanding based on what I've read that she had the option to re-record after, I believe, a 10-year period. So okay. her first single is, um, and, uh, and until, uh, I'll get back to that. So her first label, Big Machine, right? They, they, they own the, the masters. And then those masters were acquired from um, Scooter Braun's company, Ithaca Holdings, and they bought the rights to six of the masters. So it is my understanding, again, based on, I'm not Taylor Swift's lawyer, but she was trying to purchase the, the rights to the masters for, for many years, but there were restrictions in getting information that would allow her to make a, a proper bid. 
So what do I mean by that? If you're going to offer to buy something, you need more information, right? You're going to do your due diligence. Uh, you want to know how much these masters are making so you can make a, a reasonably good uh, offer and, and not overpay or, or underbid, right? So my understanding is that those that information was being withheld with her unless she signed a, a basically non-disparagement agreement concerning Scooter Braun, who she's had some public um, disputes with over the years, right? So she wasn't willing to do that. Um, meanwhile, 2019 rolls around, you know, she, she wants to perform at the AMA awards ceremony. She was being uh, honored with a pretty big honor and she wanted to use her back catalog. Right. And she had the public performance rights, but my understanding is that her right to do that was being blocked from, um, for, from the person who hold the masters or the company that owned the masters because they said, listen, this is going to be uh, taped and rebroadcasted. So that's implicating another uh, right mm. that, that we would have. And essentially, you're not allowed to re-record before a certain period of time. And we're viewing this as a re-record. And you're going to be in, in breach. Right. She also wanted to do a documentary or she wanted to use her songs in a documentary that was being made about her. And the same sort of objection was was coming up. So. Her contract uh, period rolls around uh, and, and she gets the option to re-record. And the big thing is this option is often available in you know, a lot of contracts, but people, people being the consuming public often don't want to hear a re-recording because they're used to the original, right? They like, they like the original song that they've heard, you know, people's voices mature sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. And often, even if there is a re-record, the consume, there's not really an appetite for it in the consuming public. But Taylor Swift is a master of, of social media. She's genius. <laughs> she, she is. Like, she's great. So, yeah. so she does is she starts building up the hype, right? And she creates this just desire for from the public to, to hear these re-recorded songs and they're actually you know displacing the market for the older songs the older masters and this is you know this is problematic for the holding company that obviously owns um the masters now because my understanding is they paid hundreds of millions of dollars for these but now people want the re-record mm -hmm. so it's it's really a fascinating um I mean, it's a fascinating sort of case in entertainment and copyright law because usually the rights associated with this re-record aren't a hot topic because there just isn't an appetite. But now Taylor Swift, I think, has changed the dialogue on that. She definitely has. You can't underestimate the Swifties because they're like, hey, yeah, I mean, look, a, a normal person on the street might just be like, oh, yeah, play whatever one doesn't matter. But the people who are true fans and have rallied behind her are like, no, we are going to listen to your new ones since you weren't able to do um, you weren't able to purchase the rights on your own. So um, but quick question on what you uh, on what you were talking about, why she couldn't really purchase the rights to her masters and you had mentioned something about it it's because um they they were withholding certain information that would allow her to make a bid so what kind of um like how do you get past that is that something that scooter braun and his company were doing out of spite or was it just a legal thing 
Well, that's unusual, right? So usually you might say, listen, I, I want you to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement concerning the financials of this, right? So that would be normal, right? Like, hey, I'm going to share with you confidential information, um, you know, that is sensitive to our business, uh, you know, our revenue streams, what services are, are you, know, you know, are streaming higher, where we're getting the different, you know, uh, basically how we make money. That would be normal in a in an NDA, right? What's not um, normal is putting a non-disparagement on the um, a principle of the business, um, just to see basic due diligence information. So I can't speak to, to, you know, Scooter Braun's intent. I, you know, I, I, I'm not in his head. I'm, you know, I haven't represented him, but it was, it's unusual. It's so, so you can take from that what you will. Usually the documents you sign when you're trying to bid on, um, on any deal, they, they would basically relate to the company and, you know, maybe internal processes that you may not know, or, or just things dealing with the money, they wouldn't deal with, hey, I'll only give you this information if you promise not to disparage our principal. Like that's, that, that's weird and unusual. Right. So let's say Taylor Swift was going to perform again and she's going to perform the, the song that she had already recorded. So what, how do you distinguish then in terms of law? Um, let's say she's going to record Taylor's version and it sounds exactly like the old version. Would she be able to do that at this point? Yeah. If it's a, if it's a re-record and it's one of the albums that um, the, enough time has passed, I understand she's only done two, but she intends to re-record, I believe, five of the previous six yeah if it sounds if she goes into the studio and it sounds ex- exactly like the the first album uh the first being you know the original albums yeah she can do that that is so awesome <laughs> it's, it's it's one of the cooler things i've read about in entertainment long while um it's it's just so smart it's 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 great. Totally. And I think what I respect about Taylor Swift also is that she um, she's doing it for herself and she's doing it for all probably other artists, too, who haven't been able to own the rights to their masters. Um, and we saw it kind of in the case, too, where where that guy um, touched her behind while he was taking a picture with her and um, she sued for one dollar. She's like, it's not about the money. It's it's about proving a point. And I I think that's really wonderful to have um, in today's world. All right. We've got to step aside for a quick recess, but we'll be back right after this. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So just diverting a little bit, uh, I'm thinking also about models. So they take photos and they, it's their job, but do they ever own the rights to those photos? So I can, I mean, there's a case actually that's, that's, that's in the... Um, that just had a big um, d- decision rendered in it. So Emily, uh, Emily Ratajkowski. Yeah. So she, this happens a lot, right? So under copyright law, the author of the photo is the photographer. It's not the subject. So what 
has been happening, and there's been a, a bunch of cases on this, most of them have settled, is, you know, uh, a celebrity sees the, the photo, they repost. A lot of people don't know where these photos are coming from, right? It's, it's like anything that goes on social media, except these people are famous. Like people repost photos all the time on social media, but they're not getting sued because they're not famous and they, they don't have any money, right? Mm-hmm. So Emily Ratajkowski, um, she was sued by a, a photographer, Robert O'Neill, recently, and she was uh, leaving a Photoshop, I believe in New York, because it's in the Southern District. And she you know, she's had a lot of, um, she's been quite public with, with her feelings on a paparazzi and she put the flowers up above her face and covered some of her body. And and she posted this on a story rather Instagram story rather than a main feed and basically captioned it mood forever. And she got sued, um, by the photographer. And unlike many people, she decided to fight it. And the reason why a lot of people decide not to fight it is there is a fee shifting provision in the copyright law to prevailing parties. So if you have a a work that's that's registered before infringement or with the 90 days of first publication, uh, you can be entitled to your attorney's fees back if you win, if you're either the plaintiff or the defendant. This kind of comes into what you were saying about Taylor Swift, and it's it's not necessarily about the money, right? Because Mm -hmm. she has enough money to make a statement about how um, she feels about this whole whole process. So recently, um, the court uh, was asked to decide a motion for summary judgment, which basically, if it gets granted, there's not a trial. So the, the, the judge can decide based on all the evidence that's presented in the case and the law, uh, if the case should go to a jury, but there has to be no issue of, of fact, which is something that juries determine, not judges. So in this case, the judge decided that there is an issue of fact. And the main issue came out on is uh, that that it hinged on was whether or not her use, her captioning was transformative, right? So she used significantly all the photo, but she put it in her story rather than her main feed. So so disappeared after 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So they found that she could have just put it on the feed and that would have been, um, you know, against her, her case. But the real issue is given everything in the media and, and her being captured, you know, unwillingly by paparazzi and her covering up, whether or not mood forever was basically a commentary and therefore transformed the picture into something different. Oh, so in that case, she didn't win? No, in that case, the judge decided that there's uh, enough of an issue of fact that a jury should decide the case. Oh, so is this still ongoing? Yes. Because this was in in 2019. So we're still rolling with this. This was filed in 2019. The decision was issued very recently. I mean, cases take this is a reason why a lot of people settle um litigations early on especially copyright cases because these cases routinely go on for about three years right nicole i have three questions about this i'll ask you i'll ask you the first one what if she would have tagged the photographer in the photo would that have changed things that could have changed an analysis on one of the um sub factors so essentially, one of the things they argued was that um, she didn't credit him, but it, the court actually discussed this and she said she rarely credits her photographer. So it's not evidence of her bad faith because it's typically what she does. So say mm-hmm. she always tagged photographers 
who she reposted, but in this instance, she didn't, they might find that that is um, basically indicative of bad faith, which would be one of which would be a factor weighed against her, not necessarily dispositive of the question, but it, it would go against her. Right. But that, they actually looked at that uh, in the case. Interesting. So then let's say I was to post that photo and I didn't give credit to the photographer. I don't own the rights to that photo, but I posted it on my own page. Would I get in trouble? By the way, I have no reason to post this photo. But hypothetically speaking, if I did, would I get so when sued? You, so first of all, uh, are you saying Abby as a media uh, news reporter or, or Abby as a as a regular Oh, uh, take me through both. So if you were just to post it as an individual and you weren't offering any commentary or or using it to either comment or criticize the case or, or as a function of news reporting, it's likely that that would look like infringement. Uh, however, the purpose and character of the work, news reporting is one of the um, factors that is heavily, heavily um weighed in favor of the poster if you're reporting on it for, you know, the news. Now, but what you would also want to do is you want to make sure you only used um, the amount that would be necessary for news reporting. So a a photograph is a little unusual, right? So say it was a video, say it was a three minute video of her leaving the, 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 the shop. You'd want to post the smallest amount of the video possible in order to, to do news reporting. You'd also want to make sure whatever you're doing isn't displacing the market um, for the photographer to sell in. So that's why they also, you know, when you're doing this fair use analysis, one of the things they look at is how much of this are you using? Are you using the core of the work? Are you essentially harming the photographer's ability to sell or license this work? But news reporting, teaching, commentary, criticism, um, parody, those are all things that are protected under um, the fair use doctrine. So if you were doing it again as a news in a news reporting capacity, it's likely that it would pass as fair use. And indeed, there are many blogs out there commenting on the story that do show the photo. Right. When you say that you have to just be careful about posting too much of a video, is there a time limit on that or you just want to make sure that you have the core of it? Well, the core, the core is, is the tricky part. So you want to make sure, again, it's all going back to balancing, right? So, so the core balances all these factors. So if you take the core of it, you could actually be harming um, the videographer, right? So and it's easier to kind of give this example in a song context. So say somebody's taking um, a song, right? And they, they only use five seconds, but the five seconds is the chorus. That's likely going to be infringement because you're using the core of the work and it's what people think of when they think of the song. Whereas if you were to use five seconds of another piece of the song, it might not be, um, it might be fair use because maybe it's not as readily um, discernible, right? Maybe, maybe, maybe you don't hear it right away in the, in the, um, in the song, but generally the less you should use the least amount that you need uh, in order to do whatever you're doing. And it's usually, you want to be commenting or transforming or creating parody. Like that's how SNL doesn't get sued because almost everything they do is, is parody Um. and that's protected under the fair use doctrine. Okay, so if they use a clip from Fox News, but they make a parody out of it, which they do 
often. Um, they don't get in trouble for that because it's a parody. Yeah. Yeah, it's protected. It's protected. I see. We'll be right back after this. It's so interesting because there are so many different facets of intellectual property. And it's hard for a normal person to just understand. I mean, I guess I'll speak for myself. It's hard for me to even understand that it's just there's so much to it when you talk about copyright and trademark and things like that. So just to wrap this up, um, what do you think is the most important thing somebody should know about intellectual property? I think if you have something that you believe is intellectual property, you should take measures to protect it. Because often, by the time it's actually a problem, you have lost a lot of things or your lawyer has lost a lot of tools that they can normally use if you haven't done that. So so what do I mean by that? If you have something like a, a play or a piece of music or software or choreography or a book or something creative, you should register that with the U.S. Copyright Office. It's most of the registrations were $65. And what you do is you get a whole slew of rights with that. So first of all, if somebody is infringing on, on your creative work, you can't sue them unless it's registered. And if you wait to register it until after they infringe, you're you're just left without a bunch of remedies. So one of the remedies is you can get your attorney's fees if the infringement happens after registration, but you can't get it before. So what that means is you can find, if you don't have money, you can likely find a good attorney to represent you because they'll probably take it on contingency or they'll be more willing to work with you on fees. The other thing is it entitles you to what's called statutory damages. So if you don't have a registration, you're limited to the actual damages, which is very expensive to prove. Um, And for example, like in photos, it'd be what your reasonable licensing fee would be, which may or may not be a lot. But say the infringement is just normal run-of-the-mill infringement. As a matter of law, you could be entitled to $750,000 to $30,000. If it's deemed willful, uh, the minimum is 30000 It goes up to $150,000. Wow. So yeah. you want to get your stuff protected is what For you're $65, saying. $65, you want it protected because what it does too, if, if I get, say, um, say somebody infringes on your work and it, it's registered and they get a letter um, saying, hey, you might owe me $150,000 in damages. What they're going to do is they're going to try to pay you as soon as possible. They're not going to pay you, obviously, that amount, but they're going to want to pay you because uh, what the result's going to be is that they fight you in court. They're likely, unless they have a very, you know, they have a defense, they're going to lose. They're going to pay your attorney's fees. And then if it's non-willful, it's seven fifty to 30000 And if it's deemed willful, it's 30000 to $150,000 in damages. So that is something that everyone um, should do. Uh, trademark, one of the things I'll say with trademark uh, rights is trademark rights from the United States come from use, not registration. However, there's a lot of benefits you could get from registration. But one thing that I very much want people to understand is if you do not have a registered trademark, do not put the little symbol R next to your brand name, logo, what have you. Because then if you do get a mark later on, you can actually lose your rights because it's 
you basically have been fraudulently misrepresenting that you have a registered mark. Oh boy. So now what you can do is you can use that little TM. So if you're using the mark in commerce, right? If, if you're using it to, to sell goods or services, you can say the little TM indicates that you, you're claiming uh, common law rights, so non-registered rights to, to that mark, and that's fine. But do not use that little R unless you have a registration. And a registration isn't an application in with the uh, U.S. Uh, Patent and Trademark Office. It's it's an approved application. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's you have a registration, not that you're getting a registration, not that, you know, it's 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 pending. So that, that would be something I would advise people on. OK, so you use the TM if your registration is pending or you don't have registration. That's can, correct. Can anyone use TM? If you're using uh, the mark regularly in commerce. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be using uh, using it. You can't just put TM next to a bunch of things. Okay. Um, is so there a process you, to get TM? No, you just use it. Oh, interesting. <laughs> but you have to have it in use to your point. You can't just put it on. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't just have it hanging on something that you're, you know, you haven't been selling for 5 years or something that you've never sold in commerce and you're thinking about selling. It has to be something that that you're selling in commerce. Okay, so if that then protects you if someone else tries to steal that, um, would the damages just be less than if you had an R? Or how how are you protected by using the TM? Well, it puts people on notice so you can essentially argue that there was bad faith in them adopting oh. What you really want to do, though, you want a registered trademark because that puts people on nationwide notice, not just if you've seen it. So... If you are, you know, there is a presumption of, of, you know, nationwide use if you have a federally registered mark, whereas if you don't have a federally registered mark, your use rights are basically limited to the geographic location which you're in. So say I have like uh, a very popular diner, right? And I, I have a bunch of locations in the tri-state area. Um, that would be where my trademark rights are limited to through common law use, so non-registered federal use, right? But say I have a bunch of restaurants in, you know, the tri-state area, and then I move for federal application. That application, once approved, basically will block others throughout the country from using my mark. Got it. Okay. So yeah, that's an important distinction to be made because people see the R, they see the TM, they see the C, but they all obviously mean very different things. So if you're going to go try to get intellectual property rights, you got to know the difference. And, and um, I think you broke it down really well right there. So Nicole, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And I think people have been so interested in this Taylor Swift case as well. So um, again, you did an excellent job of bringing more light to exactly what happened. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Abby. All right, if you missed anything from class, these are my office hours, and here are some top takeaways from my conversation with Nicole Hoff. Number one, there are a few different categories of intellectual property. Patent, copyright, trademark, they all carry different sets of laws, which brings me to number two. Taylor Swift's case has to do with copyright. The root of her situation is the sound recordings, not the notes and lyrics themselves. 
Taylor's controversy involves the masters, so she can re-record her songs because her fan base is so dang strong that her consumers were more than willing to listen to, quote, Taylor's version. And number three, under copyright law, the author of the photo is the photographer, not the subject. But a recent case proved that model Emily Ratajkowski's comment on a picture of herself transformed the picture into something different, therefore changing what the ultimate outcome might be for this case. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast on intellectual property. For more podcasts, you can go to foxnewspodcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this one on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen and leave us a review. This has been Getting Schooled with Abby Hornacek on the Fox News Podcast Network. Class dismissed. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.